And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele! Well, 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 now we are talking. Great to be back, starting off with yet another fine introduction by our man, Larry Babb. Thank you for that, Larry. You have tuned in to another episode of The Rodcast. I am your host, David Steele, and as always, we are brought to you by your good friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. Now, today we want to we want to kind of treat you to a little behind the curtain look at a, it's an ongoing project here at the foundation. It's something we call hot rod stories. And uh, this is something that our fearless leader, Steve Mamishian conceived of a, a few years ago as a way to try and, you know, reach early hot rodders in every nook and cranny of the country and get their stories that might otherwise not be heard or preserved. So what we do is when we find one of these guys, we send them out a packet. And and that includes a very simple to use little digital recorder, literally an on-off switch. It's either on and recording or often not recording, and it can't record over itself. Um, and it comes with those directions and also a list of questions for them to answer or talk about. And, you know, this is something they can do alone or, or have a friend or family member there to prompt them. So, uh, it's a very cool thing and, and it's starting to prove very useful. And I'm, I'm happy to say that we're getting some great stories submitted to us, uh, by both these early hot rodders and some great friends of the American hot rod foundation or as, I like to call them our hot rod army. Um, in particular, there's a there's a young guy who's a, a school shop teacher um, named John Ruvio, and he stepped up a couple months ago and and was able to gather a couple of guys in his area who fit this bill. And you know, this is up in the northeast uh, of of the United States, and I I can't tell you what it means to us to have people like that helping us to save these great stories for future generations. I mean, it's, it's really great stuff. So this is, we're going to, we're going to let you hear this today and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Um, and you know, what I really like about our guest, Bob DeMore, uh is that he's the very definition of a hot rodder uh, active during the 1950s in both street racing and early drag racing. Uh, he was building and running full race flatheads and using all the great speed equipment of the day, uh, running around with guys his age at the time who were all doing the same thing. And it was simply full on hot rodding, you know, just as you imagine it. So, but except <laughs> Bob DeMore was... 3,000 miles from Southern California. Uh, he was in New England. There was 
absolutely no difference from what his life was as a teenage hot rodder in the 50s versus the same kid doing the same stuff at the same time in Southern California. And, you know, many people listening to this right now are going, well, yeah, no kidding, dummy. (laughs) We all know that. But, you know, the point of this program is to do what we can with this to not just save these stories, but to drive this point home for anyone who isn't aware of just how universal or at least countrywide early hot rodding really was. Um, It is surprising for a lot of people to hear this, but there are a lot of folks that just don't know that. And it is a great, great shame because again, hot rodding was happening everywhere. It was not a California specific thing. So, you know, again, all the same language, uh, spoken with the same amount of passion and enthusiasm, but, uh, well, you know, with a different, uh, you know, exhaust note, maybe we could say, (laughs) um, but, uh, you know, all from a guy who never let it leave his blood, uh, as he'll point out with his very impressive record as a winning SCCA hill climb competitor. I mean, really, really serious dude. So, um, anyway, yeah, without further ado, let's take a listen now to a selection from our series, Hot Rod Stories, with a a real hero of the East Coast scene, Mr. Bob DeMore. Hi, my name's Bob DeMore. I'm 77 years old, and I've been hot rodding on and off for the last 60 years. Despite my age, I still do pretty well in competition, usually placing on the podium at most of the events I enter. The reason for this at my advanced age is I'm not that fast a driver, but I am a hot rodder, and I can still build fast hot rods. So I guess I would say my big advantage is the fact that as a hot rodder, I've learned how to make things work better than they originally worked. I grew up in Arlington, Mass. It's a a middle-class bedroom community about six miles north of Boston. Initially, I was involved in hot rodding for only a short time, from 1952 to 1954, just about two years. Military service interrupted my car activities for the next 10 years. However, those two years were really jam-packed with excitement, a lot of good friends, and above all, outrageous fun. Things were different back then in the late 40s, early 50s. We had a lot more freedom. Cops still walked beats and did not have radios, and even those in the uh, few available patrol cars did not have direct contact with the station or each other. So if you were out playing in your car, it was unlikely that you would run into a policeman, and if you did, uh, you could run away and live to play another day. The other thing, too, was there were lots of good cars available and cheap following World War II. Many of these cars are in great condition, having sat out the duration on blocks or seeing only low mileage because of the fuel rationing during the war. 
1952, I acquired a bright red channel 33 Ford window coupe. My father's obsession with eliminating anything that looked or smelled like a hot rod caused me to return the little red coupe to its former owner. So, However, my first drag race took place in that same year in his car. <laughs> it was a his 1952 old 88, while my adversary was one Robert Murphy, a mechanic who had a full race 47 Merc convertible. As I recall, it was a 270 cubic inch flathead with dual carbs and a three quarter Latario cam. And the big feature of the car was he had a Columbia rear axle, which meant he, he could flip a switch and have real low gearing. So, of course, he wanted to race up Park Ave, a rather steep hill in Arlington. And again, what did I know? I had my father's old, and I thought it would whip the world with its 160-horsepower rocket V8. Anyway, when uh, he yelled, go, signal go, away he went and left me <laughs> chasing him. I began to catch up as the olds came into its own, but uh, by that time he backed off and waved out the windows, signaling that the race was over and I had lost. And at that moment I discovered I didn't like to lose and vowed it would not happen again. We pulled over following the race next to the curb and spent some time talking. Nobody bothered us or called the police. But I learned something. Uh, it's not always the fastest car, but you got to really be careful about what the situation is that you're racing under. Billy Meehan offered to partner with me using his full race 282 cubic inch flathead, which had also incurred some damage and needed a complete rebuild. So that was going to be our project to fix up Billy's engine, get it much stronger than it ever was. And stick it in the lighter 37 Ford Coupe, and go out and clean house. We went in town into Boston to Ed Stone's New England Speed Shop, where we bought a new set of Offenhauser R 9.5 to 1 heads and a Harmon and Collins Super H track cam. Both of these items were at the very bottom of the page in the catalogs. The Offie heads on a relieved 282 actually gave a true compression ratio of just about 11 to 1. The cam was so radical that despite the extra high compression in the heads, the engine would run fine on 1954 high-test gasoline. When I first started the new, newly rebuilt 282-inch engine, there were about 25 teenagers gathered around to watch the spectacle in my driveway. The engine started right up and uh, ran with gusto, roaring through the straight pipes. At everyone's insistence, I did a block-long burnout up the street and back. Gray smoke filled the cab and finally the street, obl obliterating the telephone poles and the trees. The new engine did make the car significantly faster, I mean quite a bit faster, and Billy and I began experimenting with it. We took it over to Easton Avenue, which is a very steep 20% grade that ran probably a half mile up Park Hill in Arlington. 
And I took off, and uh, I don't think I got 300 feet before we blew out a rear tire. I mean, it just spun the tire and ate it alive, and it finally, boop, that was it. In those days, most streetcars were lucky to hit an honest 75 in the quarter. Crew timing with a watch indicated our ETs in the 14-second range, so somewhere between 14 and 15 seconds we were hopping across the quarter at down near 100 miles an hour. I had also fitted what were probably the first drag slips, drag slicks onto a car in the, on the East Coast. This was again in early 19, uh, late 1953 or early 54. I had bought a pair of used 750-16 IndyCar tires from Garvin at Ed Stone's for $10. They were bald, but the traction the soft rubber afforded the car was unbelievable. I mentioned that in back in 1952, I had lost my first drag race driving my father's old 88 against Robert Murphy, who had a Mercury hot rod. He, uh, and that really bothered me because I had been suckered and Murphy knew damn well that he had got the best of me. You know, it's one thing to uh, lose to somebody else if he's got a faster car, but to lose to somebody else because he he races you in a place where his car is faster than your car when normally your car would beat him anywhere else. So I, I had grown up a lot in the last two years, and uh, I, would, I look forward to the next encounter if I ever ran into him again. Well, as luck would have it, I was crossing the huge parking lot behind Arlington High School, and guess what came rumbling across from the other side? Yeah, a yellow Mercury convertible. He flagged me down, and he began asking questions about my car. Murph was still very condescending, and I was getting quite impatient with him. And as we talked, he kept goosing the gas pedal in his Mercury. And I was surprised because his car sounded much more throatier than I had remembered it. I told him he must have had a big mill under the hood as it was shaking both our cars. He boasted that he had installed a 354 cubic, cubic inch Chrysler Hemi with four carburetors. And it developed over 300 horsepower. Ho, ho, ho. Then it dawned on me, as impressive as the Hemi was, it was a it was a massive piece of cast iron. It added more than three hundred and fifty pounds to the front end of his Merc compared to what the flathead had weighed with the aluminum heads. I was slow to realize it, but I had waited two years for this moment. I proceeded to goad Murph into dragging drag racing across the school parking lot racing from zero to 60 miles an hour. He thought about it a moment, still thinking he was a hell of a lot smarter than I was. And he stared down at my tiny little flathead peeking out of the open hood side panels on the 37. And finally he said, okay, zero to 60. We lined up. And I feathered my clutch and just shot away like Murphy was chained to a tree. His huge Hemi was roaring and screaming and spinning its rear wheels into scrambled eggs while I easily accelerated 
up to 60 miles an hour and then waved my hand out the window telling Murph that the race was over and he had lost. <laughs> the first race we had using the fuel was against a really pretty fenderless chopped 32 Ford Highboy Coupe. It took place out on Route 2 at the Lake Street Lights. Rather than give the show away, I just used enough power to stay side by side with the deuce and nosed it out at the finish by a half a car length. I could hear the other driver discussing with his friends after the race how close he had come to beating the 37, and that he was sure he could beat me the next time we raced. I heard that he took the car home and changed transmissions and cylinder heads, among other things. But the first the first race on the Pantherpus leapt convinced me that uh, there was nothing that was going to stay with us out on the highway and probably not on a racetrack either. The 37 easily beat every car it ran against and always by the same half car length. We wanted the losers to keep coming back, you know, and betting more money or encouraging their friends to come and beat us. The winnings weren't big, but we always got enough to treat our gang when we returned to the restaurant after the race and have something left over for the maintenance of the car. <clears throat> when one of the fast guys would brag about his car, Billy would innocently suggest that he knew of a car that might challenge the Braggart's car. Of course, the next question was, yeah, what have you got? Billy would explain that it was a fat Fender 37 Ford Coupe with twin cobs, a real fast car. Now, anybody with half a brain knew there was no such thing as a fast 37 ugly duckling Ford. Hot rodders avoided these art deco aberrations because they did not have the classic look, and their cable brake systems were notoriously dangerous. Temptation of teaching a couple of naive would-be hot rodders a lesson was too great to resist for these visiting rubes. There were many Fords that had twin carbs, which in themselves added very little, if any, power to an otherwise stock flathead. Two carbs looked good and were an easy and inexpensive bolt-on. Novices would think this made their cars much faster than they really were, and they were easy pickings for a full-race setup. Getting back to Billy and the Braggots, their next question would be, well, where is this fast car? And Billy would explain that it was at a nearby home cooling down. He'd add, the damn thing overheats, limiting where it can be driven. This was just too juicy for a red-blooded opportunist to pass up. Inevitably, we'd be invited to bring the fast 37 down and see how fast it really was. So then I'd go home, get the 37, drive the two blocks to the Mile Hill, I'd shut the engine off, and then coast down Route 2, down the Mile Hill, almost all the way to the homestead. And I only had to turn on the engine to go the last couple of hundred yards yards. This saved a lot of can costly pantherpus and kept the engine much cooler. When I pulled into the restaurant, the car would evoke gales of laughter from the braggots. It barely ran, coughing and struggling against its wild track cam. The car looked like a jerk's car, full fender skirts, lowered front end, squirrel tails streaming from the radio antenna. It appeared to have only one exhaust as the left-hand pipe ended up out of sight behind the rear bumper. To add to the 
absurd effect, an oversized chrome echo cam was bolted onto the one visible tailpipe. The gear sh shift was topped by a huge brass doorknob that had once guarded a lecture hall at Tufts. The most glaring obscenities were the bald rear Firestone Indy tires, keeping in mind that this predated an M&H slicks by a few years. How could anyone be stupid enough to drag race on bald tires, they would say. When asked why it idled so roughly, I would explain that I never could get the dual carburetors adjusted correctly, and I was using the choke to keep the engine running. This would just evoke gales of laughter. Thus, the predators would suggest a friendly bet and offer me an advantage, like letting me leave first or starting a car length or two behind me, and so on. Staging the con and getting them drooling with overconfidence was as much fun as the race itself. Thanks to the Pantherpus, I usually had close to twice the power of any car I'd likely encounter on the street. These races always ended up the same. The Predators would lose by a half a car length, but they'd always be closing in on me at the finish, giving them the illusion that if the race were only a few yards longer, they would have won. Or if they had a little more power, they would have won. The only way they could win was to chain the 37 to a bridge abutment. Case in point, that pretty 32 Ford high boy came back to the homestead and again challenged me. He had done all that engine work well in the in the weeks, week or two that had elapsed since we first raced. I think the guy's name was Bill. He had upgraded the car significantly and was brimming with confidence enough to wager $25 on his newfound power. Bill had a large crew of backers who had all come to see their car win and humiliate the Ratty 37. Their coupe was about seven to 800 pounds lighter than my car, and they must have thought they had at least twice my horsepower. They all wore the same shirts to indicate that they were a club of some significance, while the guys that showed up with me were more appropriately garbed in juvenile delinquent denim. So the big big rematch was a mimeographed copy of our first encounter. I won by a half a car length with the deuce coupe closing in on me as we flashed across the finish line. That Friday, I did keep my date with Bill and his 32 Ford coupe at Richard's Drive-In in Cambridge on Memorial Drive. Bill was still confident and again wanted to bet $25. I told him to keep his money and he would learn something useful during this uh, third encounter. Up until now, I had never let the coop go all out, so everyone still thought it was a rattle trap and that I was a clown. However, I was about to leave for college in a week or two, and at college where no cars were allowed, so there was no longer a need to conceal the 37's performance. Parallel to Memorial Drive on the other side of the Charles River was the new Storrow Drive that was being built, and this was a beautiful new highway. It hadn't been open to traffic yet. And in fact, uh, we, we drove across the Charles River and uh, went through some fences which friends had cut through so that we could easily drive onto the unfinished but drivable road. I don't think it even had curbstones yet, but it was really well paved. 
It was the perfect venue for drag racing. The pavement was brand new and smooth, and there was absolutely no traffic, of course. There were a series of pedestrian bridges that crossed over the the area that we raced on, and several dozen spectators from Richards had crowded onto the one just above the spot, start line. I remember looking up through the windshield as I pulled beneath the uh, the overpass, and all the people were up there cheering and yelling. Uh, it really was like a circus out there. I pulled up beside Bill's 32 coupe and began revving my my engine in order to keep the plugs clean. He did the same with his engine, and and he had uh, uncapped lakes headers, so the noise was getting pretty loud, which attracted a Boston police cruiser. However, it didn't have any access to the construction site from the Boston side and couldn't get onto the highway, so we continued our racing protocol without interruption. Billy flagged us off, and I buried the throttle on my Ford. It literally leaped away from Bill's 32 and opened up a gap of at least 15 car lengths in first gear. I didn't even bother to shift into high gear and coasted the last half of the race in neutral. Bill never even got close enough to appear in my rearview mirror. We all went back to Richards and compared notes, all except Bill. Apparently, he had done some serious work on his car, shaving the heads until he had what I had heard was a 13-to-1 compression ratio and converted his carbs to burn methanol. Well, I guess I had done the same thing, but I didn't go 13-to-1. As he crossed the finish line, he blew his uh, flathead all over Boston's newest highway, and the last anybody saw of Bill was... Uh, one of his friends had come down onto the highway and was trying frantically to tow Bill's car out of there before the police did figure out how to get onto the highway. My final significant outing with the 37 came that June when I took it to the uh, NHRA drags at Orange up in uh, western Massachusetts. I think it was, yeah, early June 1954. Everybody was really excited about this event, and it was widely advertised. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have known about it. Anyway, we drove out Route 2 to Orange, and it was about 60 or 70 miles, as I recall. It seemed like it was forever. Probably it was only 40 miles, but as I say, it seemed like it was forever droning along in that hot coop. Several loads of friends had accompanied Billy and me to watch the coop run against the best hot rods in the Northeast. And that put a lot of pressure on us to do well. I really didn't know what I was doing when I got there because I had never been to one before and really hadn't thought much about it. And I don't think I was the only one because there were a lot of people milling around that didn't know quite what to do. This, I think, being only the second drag I ever had held in that this area of the country. You know, we all knew we had to get through tech inspection, and that was a long line. But uh, after that, as far as I thought, you just went out there and ran and chose people to run against. I had no idea that the pairings were organized and that you raced once, and if you lost, you were out, that type of thing. It was an extremely hot day, and the heat waves were boiling up from the asphalt runway that we were going to race on. And this runway was greasy to the touch, 
and pretty rough. And I began to question my wisdom in using the Indy and Indy tire slicks that had served me so well out on the highway. Looking around, the other car had slick tires, and some were even running snow tires. I, I should have known. Anyway, my first run was against one of the banisters. I think it was Ralph. No sense wasting time with minor leaguers. When the flagman waved, waved us off, I rode the clutch a little bit to get out of the hole and seemed to accelerate well in first gear. I then speed shifted up into second gear and floored the accelerator. Much to my surprise, I was heading right back toward the start line. <laughs> Those treadless tires had lost traction in the gooey asphalt and spun hopelessly while the car did a snap 360 back. Well, it did a snap 180 and then kept going around to complete a, th a 360. So for a moment, I was heading back to the finish, the starting line. And then, as I stayed in it, it swung around, and I was again heading down the drag strip going after Ralphie. I never got out of the gas and kept driving the car, aiming to finish the race. I was actually closing in rather fast on the other car as we flashed past the finish, and we kept racing until I got alongside of him, just so he'd know the coupe was a serious challenger. I was thrilled, even though I had lost the race technically, as the coupe was really much more powerful than the winning car. In fact, had my aim been a little better, I would have drove a circle around him and still beat him. It was evident we were not going to win the day as the traction was so bad. Billy and I decided to start in second gear and let the excellent low-speed torque of the Pantherpus get us out of the hole, better slow and straight than fast and going the wrong way. Our next run, and I assume these were uh, qualifying runs or practice runs or test and tune runs. I don't, I don't know what they were. But my second run was against Eddie Havaginian's beautiful green uh, 32 Roadster. And again, Eddie leapt away at the start as I figured he would on his big treaded tires. And he stayed well ahead until I shifted into high gear. And once I got into high, I roared up behind him less than a car length uh, off his bumper. It got the win, but I, I had easily passed him in the lights just beyond the finish. We talked after the race, and he good-naturedly good kidded me on my loss. I reminded him that I effortly passed him after the finish. He was quick to retort that he was in front in the finish, and that was all that counted. That counted. So I challenged him to a street race on the highway, figuring the better traction out there would give me the advantage I needed, and uh, offered to bet him $50. He mumbled that he did not street race. <laughs> I should have mumbled that I did not have $50 either. One of my runs was timed at 104 miles an hour, which earned me the A-gas mile-an-hour championship, although I had no idea how the classes were broken down. Even more ironic was the fact that the car contained almost no gasoline during its record run, subtly replaced by Billy's Pantherpus. The next fastest car to ours in terms of miles an hour was a rear-engine V8 old-powered belly tank that stopped the clocks at 101 miles an hour. So 
when I left Orange, I was really feeling pretty good about, you know, what I, I wasn't at all embarrassed by what my my car had done against the best the, our area could produce. Shortly after Orange, I turned the car over to Billy and I went off to college in the U.S. Army. These days, I am the oldest regular driver in the uh, SCCA's National Hill Climb Series, and I'm the, probably the first, I think I'm the only sip to a genarian to win an event outright. Yeah, as much fun as the current 700-horsepower Formula 5000 is, I still would like to close this out with just a simple phrase, flatheads forever. Well, there you go, folks. How about that? How about that? Mr. Bob DeMore, everybody. Man, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed that. Just great stuff. Uh, what a memory. And uh, just vivid. Every second just burned into his brain. Uh, uh, plays like a movie. His, his uh, early hot rodding memories. And you know what? If I'd been there, I think I'd remember it like that, too. It, uh, I think it's everything we think it was and, and more. And uh, again, thanks to guys like Bob who are willing to share that stuff with us and, and pass that along. Um, that is a, a look into our, our series, Hot Rod Stories. And for anybody listening, if you know a family member, a friend, a friend of a friend, you know, someone you think about and you go, man, that guy the stuff he's walking around with. If only other people could share in that and could understand those experiences and uh, what a shame it would be, you know, if people don't get to hear that. Um, please contact us. Go onto our website. Reach out to us about this project and we will happily send you out a recorder and, and everything you need to know to do this. It's so easy and we've found from a lot of people who've been involved in this it's a ton of fun you know uh, guys guys really seem to open up when they're sat down and and asked to to do this and share this stuff so um you know feel free like i say to reach out and say hello and uh tell us who you know um who could be part of hot rod stories as always, special thanks to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton, and social media management comes to you, as always, from Crystal Hayes, technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan, and our theme song, as usual, as always, is by me. Um, special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who's always doing the heavy lifting, always keeping us on track. And never forget, the American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit. It was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian. And believe me, without their generosity, none of this would be happening. So if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please check us out. Our website is ahrf.com. 
Uh, you can support us by checking out our cool new merchandise. You can support us by signing up to receive updates. We'll update you on all things having to do with the foundation, as well as when new episodes of the Rodcast are headed your way. So uh, check us out there. Uh, also, Instagram and Twitter. We happen to have a great Facebook page as well that'll send you daily updates, historic photos with great captions by our man Jim Miller. And um, that's about it. We thank you for tuning in, as always. And we thank Bob DeMore for uh, lending his time and stories. And we'll see you here next time on the next episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.